Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Today we'll speak with crime reporter Ramon Vargas about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and a related scandal in the New Orleans Police Department. Jerry DiColo, our Metro editor, will join us to talk about the church's finances and tough times, which are bound to get tougher with the release of new names. And we'll talk to the Advocates Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist Walt Handelsman about the slowly disappearing craft of editorial cartooning and how Walt gets his inspiration every day. Ramon Vargas covers crime for the New Orleans Advocate, and he's recently been writing about new revelations of sex abuse in the Catholic Church and some of its affiliates, uh, such as Jesuit High School. Ramon, thanks for being here today. Happy to be here. So, Ramon, I think maybe the best place to start this story is with Ricky Winman because he connects a lot of these links. But tell us a little bit about who Ricky Winman is, who he is today, and what how he figures into the sex abuse scandal. Well, Ricky Winman today is a computer programmer in Texas. Um, I met him last month uh, when I contacted him and uh, convinced him to open up uh, about a $450,000 financial settlement that he reached with, uh, with Jesuit High School. Um, he was never a student there, but he grew up very close to the school and uh, described being sexually abused by a, uh, a maintenance man by the name of Peter Modica, and on one occasion uh, by a priest named Neil Carr. And uh, he kept that to himself, uh, this all happened in the 1970s. In 19, yeah. So this happened in the in the mid 1970s, and and he keeps that all to himself, and and kind of comes out as as the, a middle aged man. As a, yeah, he's 53, and he uh, he comes out uh, really motivated by the uh, the church abuse scandal, mm-hmm. which has kind of heated back up since the uh, Pennsylvania grand jury report uh, from a couple of months ago, and really. I kind of thought that 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 would that was it when he opened up about it and I verified everything and I I told the story um but but then keeping in touch with him I I end up uh learning that that hadn't been the first time that he had been sexually abused he had also been uh a witness in a uh, a notorious case from a little earlier in the 1970s that involved a a, a group of boy scout leaders who were convicted of sexually abusing the, the boys that they were supposed to be mentoring mm-hmm. as, as part of the Boy Scouts. And one of the victims was Ricky Winman, and he, he testified. He was a key witness in that case, um, and it ultimately sent, uh, you know, several people to... Uh, it resulted in convictions against several people, including four scoutmasters who were sentenced to uh, to prison for, for many years uh, in 1977. Uh, through his participation in that case, he ends up meeting... Uh, a, a police officer by the name of Stanley Burkhart, who ended up developing a reputation as uh, as somebody who, who busted pedophiles, but uh, he himself was eventually unmasked as a as a pedophile. He uh, child pornography possession conviction. He at one point admitted um, to sexually abusing a young relative of his, and uh, ends up in, in in prison for for a pretty long time. Um, and, and one of his, his last incarcerations occurred um, in, in 2011 when, uh, when Ricky Winman was a witness who revealed that after meeting him through the Boy Scouts, uh, Burkhart had, had sexually abused him. Wow. And, and, and so he, this, this was sworn testimony. The judge evaluated the testimony. 
uh, and and determined that uh, that that Burkhart needed to stay behind bars uh, for uh, for longer, and he was released in 2015. So, so just to recap, you've got three totally distinct scandals, essentially, where sex abuse scandals, where this one child, who's now a grown man, Ricky Winman, was abused separately by the scouts, by an NOPD detective, and by Jesuit high officials. And all of these have been deemed to be credible in some way. Jesuit paid him. Uh, Burkhart was confined as a result of these allegations, and the scout masters went to prison. It, it seems almost implausible or highly improbable that one child would be involved in all these things it, but you've looked into this and it's, it appears to be true to the best of our knowledge and is, does this kind of thing happen often it is not uncommon is what i learned in reporting this story um I, you know often is, is obviously a relative term but uh speaking to a, a da's investigator who was involved in the boy scout case uh to speaking to somebody on the kind of academic uh, advocacy side, both one, you've got the, the DA investigator talking from his experience that Ricky Winman unfortunately wasn't the only person he had met who had been similarly mm-hmm. um, uh, assaulted by, by different people mm-hmm. in a short amount of time uh, in their youth and then uh, and then there's, there's research that backs that up according to the academic uh, expert that I spoke to uh, in which once uh, that that uh, the, the, the type of trauma that a sexual assault uh, in, leaves on a, on a victim um, leaves them exposed to Makes them more someone, else, to, yeah. someone else coming and, and taking mm-hmm. advantage of that. And, uh, and it appears that Ricky Winman is, is, is one of them. One and, of those cases. Well, I guess in, in looking at it in another way, I mean, Stanley Burkhardt is kind of connects these cases in a way. And he was a person, of course, who was assigned to – he was supposed to be helping Ricky Winman, and instead he allegedly abused him. And uh, let's – well, let's – tell me a little more about Burkhardt because you had an, another story about him this week that was pretty remarkable. What did you discover about, about Burkhardt? Yeah, I mean, Burkhart, uh, and speaking to Winman, um, you know, one of the things that he mentions is, uh, that, that Burkhart would go around, would show him a picture of, of a, of a boy who he claimed had been murdered and tossed into, uh, into the, and eventually found in the Mississippi River and, and would kind of hold up his picture and say, if you, uh, if you don't do what I want you to do, that this, this can be you. Uh, well, obviously, Winman's story got a lot of attention given given the moment that we're in, and uh, another person came forward, um, a, a man by the name of Vic Groomer, who described similarly uh, meeting, uh, ha- having occasion to meet Stanley Burkhart, uh, and, and Burkhart ends up sexually abusing him for you know several times over over the course of a few years, uh, and during a time frame that actually predated uh, the the abuse that Winman described. And, um, and, and same thing. One of the things he said is that one time, you know, he showed him a picture of, uh, several pictures of, of kids that he claimed were murdered, but one specifically was a boy, uh, who had been found in the Mississippi River, uh, he explained, and, uh, and had been, you know, after he had been murdered. And, uh, and, and though there wasn't an explicit threat, the, the, the boys took it as the one. Boy, well, Vic Rumor took it as, like, he's telling me that this can be me if I don't. If I ever speak up mm-hmm. about about what happened, and of course he didn't speak up until Ricky Winman spoke until up, just now, yeah. and and you know you've, you've got decades that have passed since then. Uh, so of course I start digging through, you know, to try to see like who who this this person might be. Come across a story, and and Ricky Winman had mentioned that the guy's name might be Eddie, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I I start going through you know the public library database and 
come to find a story written by Walt Philbin was, of course, a, uh, I worked with him briefly uh, in very early in my career, but obviously uh, one of the uh, most renowned crime reporters, I think, to ever work in New Orleans. And he describes Stanley Burkhardt talking about a boy by the name of Edward Wells, who was 17, who mysteriously turned up dead in the Mississippi River. And Stanley Burkhardt described his theory that Edward Wells was um, having sex with men in exchange for money and that possibly or most likely one of them killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the, uh, an autopsy didn't show any signs of foul play. Um, it was ruled it, a drowning. It was time. ruled a, a probable drowning, mm-hmm. if I, uh, according to the story. It's, but, but Burkhardt had the theory that he had been killed. And, and one thing that wasn't in the story, but as I uh, visited with Walt to try to kind of see, hey, what, what, as you always, what didn't you put in the story? Like, right. what can you tell me? Uh, was it seemed that Burkhart was eager to, <laughs> to put it out there that there had been a suspect uh, in, in in the murder that he he knew who had killed him. Um, you know, Walt, being the good reporter that he that he was, was like, I can't, I can't like throw someone's name out there without an arrest, without booking documents, some sort of warrant that, right. like, accuses someone of, of a, a, basically portrays that person as a murder suspect. Um, so and, and so Walt never got a name. Um, and so all of this gets back to the police, who have now revisited the case. So they've just reopened this 1982 drowning case. or this It's revisiting it, kind right. of like giving it fresh set of eyes, uh-huh. assigned it to a cold case investigator by the name of Winston Harbin. It just indicates, obviously, a, taking a, a level of seriousness that maybe there was more to Edward Wells, maybe there wasn't, and certainly, um, you know, the police have been made aware of the new, uh, by Ricky Winman and by uh, Vic Groomer, that, uh, that, that they were two boys who had been um, assaulted by by Burkhart who had never come forward and right. so all of that is leading into this investigation at this point I guess it's anybody guess where it may go but it, it certainly it there are signs that they're taking this investigation very seriously hmm. and then this you know this sort of raises a broader question of Burkhart's work generally I mean here's a guy who was put in charge of child abuse cases and we now you know believe him to be a, a guy who abused children has the NOPD ever done any kind of an audit of his work to see if he it seems like naturally one might suspect that he might have victimized other children. Uh, has have they? Has there been any effort to look through any of his cases? To the best of my knowledge, no. Having spoken to people who were in the orbit of the Boy Scout case, who kind of knew Stanley Burkhardt, they watched his rise and then saw his fall. Um, they were never aware of such a such an audit. Um, and and then asking one, would you have liked to have seen one like that? Uh, the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. But um, to the best of our knowledge, uh, none was ever done. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today, Ramon. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Jerry DiColo is the Advocate's Metro editor. He's also been doing some reporting on the Catholic Church's finances. Jerry, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the most recent news. Uh, Louisiana's Catholic bishops, after some hemming and hawing, announced this week that they will release the names of every priest and deacon, etc., that has been credibly accused of child sex abuse. Have they said how they plan to do this or when? No, we don't know when they might be doing it or how. Um, I mean, I think the the interesting thing is that they have not really seemed to want to do this or have not come out as clearly that they're going to do this until this week. And in doing so, they're going to be joining about 50 of the about 200 archdioceses around the country in releasing these lists. And so um, to some degree, they're they're joining what I think is becoming a growing group of people to to. It's getting to harder to out. not do this. In exactly. Other words. Yeah. 
So, and you wrote an interesting story recently about the the local archdiocese finance, but finances. But tell us this: so, it, when it comes to sex abuse, the church is kind of in a tight spot, where you have on the one hand what most people might consider is the right thing to do, which is to be as transparent as possible, and on the other hand, doing so can really hurt the church's finances. And is there kind of a natural tension between those points? Yeah, it's a tough dilemma that they're in. If you want to talk coldly pragmatic and coldly financial because diocese and particularly the the archdiocese of new orleans are not in great financial shape they've been dealing with for years really decades declining church membership declining contributions and so it's not as if they have these huge church coffers that are filled with cash so that they can pay for all the programs they want and pay for now all of these settlements and so one of the things that they're dealing with when they think about releasing these lists or really bringing any publicity to the sex abuse scandal that is still ongoing is has to be um, if they're being financial stewards at in any degree of the diocese has to be how are we going to pay for this and the thing that we've discovered is that it it can be very very costly for them and it can be very tough to figure out how they're going to balance releasing a lot of information which is Again, like you said, considered kind of the right thing to do with dealing with the fallout from it. Because it's bound to trigger a new wave of settlements. We've seen that all across the country. So a great example of that is in what is a fairly small diocese of St. Cloud, Minnesota. They released a list of names a couple of years ago. I think it was 2014 or 2015. And then just earlier this year, they came out and said after getting about 74 claims, I think 74 claims of abuse, that they're going to be filing for bankruptcy and they're essentially insolvent by because of how they're going to have to be playing these claims. And large settlements, large amounts of abuse coming at the same time we've seen has caused dioceses to... And the St. Cloud diocese is not the first one to go bankrupt. No, there's been, there's been 15 already, including some very large ones. And uh, St. Paul, Minnesota is mm-hmm. one that comes to mind, but there's other ones all around mm-hmm. the country. And it's because they've had... Settlements that are not in the one or two million dollars, but through different ways that they've been set up. Sometimes they're in class action status, sometimes not. Sometimes they all just come at the same time. But when they do, uh, that can mean tens of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. 20 million, 40 million. There's been hundred of hundred million dollar settlements. And so for for New Orleans, for for a for a diocese the size of New Orleans, I mean that would be backbreaking. Well, tell us a little more about the Archdiocese finance here. I mean, you were able to, these are, their books are usually pretty tightly held, but you were able to look at the New Orleans Archdiocese books a little more thoroughly because of some filings they've had to make public, right? That's right. Archdiocese and dioceses really all over the country are not very forthcoming with how they're managed, how they're financially managed. Um, But in some cases, and in the case of the Archdiocese in New Orleans, they've issued bonds in the past. It had a lot to do with rebuilding around Katrina, but they had been doing some capital campaigns around that um, to try and rebuild. And so they went to the public debt markets. And when they did so, that meant that every year they were going to have to issue financial statements. And so that gives a really good peek under the covers of what's going on here to understand how well they're doing on an annual basis, what their assets are. And also, and this is a, probably the most interesting part, is that when you file financial disclosures uh, for municipal bonds, which is what the archdiocese have uh, issued, but also if you're a public company, there are always sections of it called risk disclosures. Mm-hmm. And what that, what they have to tell you in there is all the things that could go wrong, all the things that could happen to them, mm-hmm. um, because you're allowed to know that as an investor. 
And so when you're able to read through those things, you get a really good peek at what's on the mind of the people that are running the archdiocese. And sex abuse is one of those things. Sex, sex abuse and settlements is, has always been on that. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the archdiocese is that they've mo- made some moves in recent years to try and set up their finances, to try and protect them, or at least try to set up a fund that they would be able to tap or potentially able to tap, depending on how you read the legalese for abuse settlements and so so they don't have traditional insurance for this purpose this is no. something they self-insure for essentially that's right um they do have some insurance that goes back to the period at which the claims occurred most most abuse claims really throughout the throughout the catholic church occurred in the late 70s and early 80s and so there are some legacy insurance policies that they believe the archdiocese believes would cover them to some degree that's been challenged in other dioceses as well so it's a it's a big to be sure there on who knows what, how much they would pay. Um, but for any claims now, they're self-insured. Mm-hmm. And really for anything that isn't covered by that long ago in legacy insurance, they're also self-insured. And how much have they set aside for that? They have about $14 million that are set, af- set aside in a captive insurance fund. Mm-hmm. Now, that has that could be used for all si- types of insurance. It could be used for slips and falls of the church. If a priest gets in a car accident, it's all those types of things. But what it looks like now is that they're significantly overfunded mm-hmm. based on what they believe their liabilities are. And so if you are overfunded by about seven or eight million dollars, which is how I have read the financials and how they've, how they've explained them to me as well, that suggests to me uh, that that's a fund that they may be able to tap, at least in, in, some, in some situations in order to pay for some of these claims. Okay. And that based on the fact that they're about to release uh, a, a series of new names, we might expect a wave of new settlements. Yeah, I, I think that that is almost probably inevitable. almost inevitable, yes. Um, it's just that publicity for these things, when typically brings more, more allegations out, what tends to happen is that even when one allegation comes out, and we've seen this, this in our reporting over the last several months, when one allegation against a particular priest comes out, it makes it so that the other victims of that priest are more willing to come out. They feel right. more confident. They want to share their story as well. And so um, for a lot of victims, it's not about financial compensation. And so I want to be clear about that. What it's more about is making sure that people know that this happened to them. Right. They often say, you know, we often have comments in the story that say, I needed to tell people because I want other people to feel comfortable telling it. They've often been through years of therapy. They've often been through really just calamitous portions of their lives that right. a lot of them trace to these pretty horrific traumas that they suffered when they were children. And so, yes, they want to hold the, the church accountable. And then oftentimes that means financially, but I think they also want to be able to hold them morally accountable or accountable in public as well. Right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Jerry. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Gordon. So joining me now is Walt Handelsman, the uh, Advocate's two-time Pulitzer-winning editorial cartoonist. Thanks for joining us, Walt. No, it's my pleasure, Gordon. Thank you. So, Walt, I think a a thing that a lot of us would like to understand better is tell us a a little bit about the process of creating an editorial cartoon and what do you do do every day? Well, it's really a 24-hour process for me because I, I really can't turn the news cycle off in my head. I'm, I'm always looking for a great new topic for the next day's cartoon. Um, I work Monday for Tuesday and Tuesday for Wednesday and so on down the line. So I'm working on deadline every day. And basically, I will read the paper in the morning and go on the web and look at 
all the hottest stories and make a short list of topics that I think people will be talking about the next day. Uh, I really try and stay away from uh, the minutia of smaller stories. I want to make sure that people know what the topic is before they look at the cartoon, obviously. And there, these days, there are plenty of big topics, both <laughs> locally and statewide and nationally and even internationally. So I will sort of look at all those stories and pare it down to maybe a list of three to seven topics that I think would be good. And then I basically just stare at the topics and try and think. Maybe sometimes I combine two topics, mm -hmm. but I try and come up with a, an idea on one of those topics. Of course, putting in my, my point of view, um, deciding whether or not this one is going to be funny or this is a serious topic. It, uh, there's a range of things. And then eventually I will get on uh, sort of down a road where I feel comfortable with the direction I'm going on a topic and I'll scrap all the other ideas and just focus in on that. And when the light bulb goes off and I know I have the, the idea that I want is a magical moment. I don't know when that's <laughs> going to happen. It can, it can happen in an hour and it can happen at two o'clock in the afternoon. It's a, that's sort of the anxiety that, that drives But this. it continues to happen at least a few times a week. It, and it happens at least four or five times <laughs> a week, yes. And uh, I think over the – I've been doing this for 30 years. So I think now um, the panic that used to set in when I was a young man on it's not going to happen today, yeah. that that at least is somewhat gone, although it's still there in the back <laughs> of your head. <laughs> you got to stay hungry, you know. Yeah. Well, so and for you, I, I'd imagine that you're – you know how to draw. I don't know how to draw at all. I mean – to me, I look at the drawings and I think that looks impossible, but the drawing is the easy part. This is really all about inspiration and coming up with a funny idea that's based on something that people will also recognize immediately, hopefully. Right. I think that the to me and I think to all cartoonists, the idea is 95% of the job is, is coming up with a, a solid idea um, and something that people will understand that isn't, you know, that you haven't gone down some road. That you don't you have think to Google it's funny, it or something. Right. That you think it's funny. You know, this is so funny. And you, a person looks at it and goes like, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, but, you know, then that once the idea, you know, I will draw several rough sketches and then I will send them to uh, Peter Kovacs, mm -hmm. the editor of the paper. And he'll usually email me back and say, I like numbers two and three or I like number one or we'll talk to each other and come up with um, which one we want to do for the next day. At that point, my day is pretty much set. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to kick back, watch the news, um, and I'm going to draw my cartoon, which basically means uh, I take my rough sketch, put it on a little thin light table that I have, take my drawing board, put it on top, and basically trace the lines that I've done on my little rough sketch. And then I get a pen and ink drawing, throw that into my computer by scanning it, and then I color it, which takes a couple of hours mm -hmm. on Photoshop. That's something we didn't yeah. used to do years ago, but that adds a lot of dimensionality to it. So Right. And then the drawing itself, I mean, talk a little bit about that. Like you have, you know, the caricatures are, is a part of that and, and they're that's part of the humor too. Right. But they're And they're fairly easy for you at this point. But you talk about, for instance, how you do, draw Donald Trump. Well, caricatures are never easy for me. That is not something that comes easily to me. Over time, I've developed a style that looks enough like people, but... <laughs> You, you want, want people to recognize the guy right. that you're drawing. I mean, yeah. You don't want them to always wear a little button that says, I am you know, <laughs> whoever it is. But it is a challenge when someone new comes along. Right. And you're like, how am I going to draw this person? My readers won't recognize who that is unless I put a little pin on it the first couple of times. And then it's going to look too much like a portrait. It's not going to be kind of wacky and different and funny. So it does take some time. And I think we were talking about uh, the way I draw Trump's hair. That sort of 
that's swirly, sort of some people think it looks like a hurricane. I think it looks like a cinnamon bun. <laughs> it just sort of happened by accident. And, and the second and third and fourth times that I drew them, I'm like, let me throw that little line in. And then that ended up developing into one of the sort of signature things that I do. And I don't think a lot of other cartoonists, if any, do it that way. So the, over time, I think your, your daily readers here in New Orleans and through my syndication get a chance to, they become accustomed to my drawing. But um, caricatures are very difficult at first, easier as you've done it many times. and um, Do they grow more exaggerated over time? Oh, definitely. Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. You know, um, in the beginning, um, I, I think all cartoonists were drawing Trump with regular sized hands. <laughs> and then there was this whole thing in the debate yeah. uh, about the size of his hands. And, and he made these comments. Tiny. And, you know, you have to seize on that. <laughs> and the thing about um, in modern day politics, it used to be that a president would do some kind of, you know, wacky off the cuff stuff. And every cartoonist would seize on it. And these days, it's say every day. Yeah. There's some wild stuff that's going on. And, it's, and the, the news cycle is sped up, you know, so much. And it's so different than it used to be back in the day that you're constantly trying to cap, you know, to kind of keep up with the pace of all right. this stuff. Um, and you're working on a newspaper deadline, which is really for tomorrow. And it almost can be, it's tricky to stay totally current in a way. It is. Because and things move so quickly. Things move quickly. And luckily, you know, with social media... Uh, I, for people that follow me on Facebook, I take a piece of my cartoon every day in the afternoon. I throw it up online and, and people have fun with that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you could, you could really, you could do a cartoon every hour yeah. right online <laughs> and we're just trying to keep up with everything. Not that I'm suggesting I want to do that. <laughs> Hopefully Peter's not listening. Um, so, well, tell us a little bit about your career journey. I mean, you were in New Orleans. Uh, you won a Pulitzer Prize here. You left for New York, a much bigger market, and then you ended up coming back. What what drove that decision? Or those uh, yeah, I started, um, actually graduated from college and went into advertising. Um, and I did that for a couple of years, and I found it uh, not very satisfying in terms of my creative juices at that point. And um, I really liked cartooning. I dabbled it in a little bit in college. I ended up getting a, a job at a chain of weekly newspapers in Columbia, Maryland, in between Baltimore and Washington. And then my first big break came in 1984. I was offered a job at the Scranton Times. And um, Dunder Mifflin's from there, right? You know, there was no office then. <laughs> that wasn't a show yet. But Scranton was a great place. Yeah. And we was, it was a small town. We had a lot of friends. We were young. The paper was great. Um, and it was a great learning experience for me. And then when I was there, uh, Mike Luckovich, who were very close friends, left the Times-Picayune to go to the Atlanta Constitution. And um, I applied for his job, and I was so excited the day I got the job. That was, that was a huge break for me. We were moving from Scranton, Pennsylvania to New Orleans <laughs> and moving to a much bigger paper. I mean, it was just everything I dreamed of. So we moved down here, worked here for 13 years, um, just loved it. And then an opportunity arose for me to go to New York to Newsday, which was a much bigger paper. My mom and dad were getting quite old then. They lived in Baltimore. I thought it would be great for our kids to have a chance to spend more time with them. So we made the move. And as you can imagine, it was um, it was uh, shortly thereafter that we really began missing New Orleans. We, we didn't want to leave, but the opportunity was there. But anyway, uh, fast forward another 12 years um, wow. through Katrina, the Saints winning the Super Bowl. You know, we're in New York and we just felt very disconnected from the people in the place that we love so much. So when John George's uh, purchased the Advocate and opened the New Orleans um, office and 
things were sort of moving along. Uh, and I got a call. I'm like, we should really look into this. And we did. And we were just thrilled, just absolutely thrilled to be back. Yes. It's been five years now. We so. were thrilled you came back. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Walt, was um, just in, in you sort of uh, you sort of nodded to this, but there's not uh, – there's not that many of you doing plying your trade anymore. I mean, once upon a time, every newspaper, the Scranton newspaper, the Times Picayune, uh, the New Orleans Advocate, every, everybody had an editorial cartoonist. And there's fewer of you kind of plying the trade now. How 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 few of you are there, and how how has that changed? Well, when I started cartooning in the mid '80s, there were about 250 cartoonists. There were a lot more newspapers, and newspapers were making a lot of money, and cartooning was really the place that Americans went for satire in many respects. Uh, you know, there were no late night talk show hosts back then. And, and it was just, it was just different. Um, so the business began shrinking, which actually led me to something that I do in my career now, which is the animation, because I saw that the, the business was shrinking. I saw that people were more and more going online for their news. And I wanted to develop a way to use my satire and have fun with my, you know, talents uh, online. So I started working on animation in 2005, early 2006, as a way to, you know, not only have stuff in print, but also have stuff online. Yeah. And um, so now there are only like, I'd say 50 daily editorial cartoonists, there may be less. It's sad. I think it was a big mistake for newspapers to cut them. They're one of the most popular things. And yeah, um, a little sort of spoonful of sugar to go with your news in the morning. It's just, you know, people love cartoons. And yeah. It's, people need to laugh. You need to laugh, and, and it's a, you know there's a way to to really reach out to a younger audience with mm -hmm. cartooning. It's, it's it brings a whole different dimension, and and of course here one of the fun things that I've that I've been doing is these uh, caption contests. Yeah, which have been it's it's interesting. In New York, they were not that popular, even though it was a much bigger uh, readership. Hmm. I think Louisianans have such a great sense of humor and they're so everyone's a character i get hundreds of responses i've got to say i've been really impressed with the quality of the responses yes. i mean they're really yes. very good and i think like why didn't i think of that you know? oh, they're, I mean, they're really good and uh, you know i have a group of maybe 20 or 30 who every single every other week when i do them they always send in good ones and uh, we have kids sending them in we're going to probably try and do something just a kids cartoon contest at some point uh, we have seniors uh, one of the fun things that I get to do in my job because I work alone and it's it's a quiet job. It's not involving a lot of other people. Is when there's a, I get to call the winner, which uh -huh. is always so much fun uh -huh. to talk to these folks. <laughs> but people here are real characters and they have a great sense of humor. And I try and make those caption contests really about just fun stuff, mm -hmm. not to be too heavy. Right. And people really enjoy them. It's a great yeah. way to be in touch with the readership. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. Well, appreciate it. Thank you, Gordon. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week. <laughs>